Hello and welcome to another episode of Social Justice Matters, the podcast from Social Justice Ireland. My name is Suzanne Rogers and I am a research and policy analyst with Social Justice Ireland. As those of you who tune in regularly will know at this point, we release three different types of podcasts. We have our 10 minute lesson series where what we try and do is get across the key points of a particular topic within 10 minutes. There's our seminar series where we provide the opportunity to listen back to some of the most important presentations we've had at past events. And then we have our interview series where we chat to experts on a range of policy areas. This week is one of those. I'm delighted to be joined by Nora Condon, who's Senior Data Analyst at Solus. Solus is the state agency tasked with creating a further education and training sector that delivers education, training and skills, enabling learners to succeed in both the labour market and to thrive in society generally. We do acknowledge the wealth of information produced by Solus, but for this particular conversation, we're concentrating on three specific reports. So one is lifelong learning among adults, one is moving on up the spring skills bulletin, and the last one then is women on home duties. You can find all of the links and more in the notes and we hope you enjoy. Firstly, thank you so much for your time. I'm very conscious that it is a precious commodity. And secondly then, Nora, we might just begin, I suppose, at the start, which is the organisation you work for. You might just explain what Solace is, what it does. Okay, all right. So first of all, Suzanne, thanks very much for this invitation. Always very happy to chat about skills to people who are interested. But my name is Nora Condon and I work as a senior data analyst in the skills and labour market research unit in Solace. So Solace is the further education and training authority in Ireland. So we look after the planning, coordination and funding for further education. So that would be a, a whole range of education and training interventions, both for people who are leaving school um people who are already in the workforce and want to upskill people who would like to enter or re-enter the workforce and would like to upskill or even people who are experiencing literacy difficulties there there is training options as well for them and there's education and training in the fet sector available in every county in ireland so it's a, it's a very wide demographic that we aim to address Within Solace, then, we have the Skills and Labour Market Research Unit. And our remit is not just confined to the FET sector. We look at skills and labour market demand across the economy. So that could be very high skill levels, um, maybe kind of a quality control engineer in the high-tech medical devices, for example, or it could be the, the skill supply for any other sort of job in the economy, even ones where you need relatively low levels of qualifications to enter those jobs. And we monitor the supply and demand of skills to various occupations. And we measure skill generally by occupation. So it's not quite exactly the same thing, but we, and that'll be important later on. And I think some of the topics we'd like to cover um, but skill is one way of occupation is one way of measuring skill. Another way of measuring skill would be education level. So what's somebody's education level? And of course, the best way of all to measure skill is to actually assess the skills themselves. But skills are very wide and varied. So there's not that many studies that actually measure the skills of individuals. When they talk about skills, 
and I suppose what you think of sometimes as as maybe low skilled jobs they do require a certain level of skill you know they'll require logistical thinking they'll require problem solving they'll require time management they'll require people skills so you, you know you are right in I suppose in that there's different ways of of slicing the pie and um, I suppose I, I do really want to say at the outset as well is that right, just because we're concentrating on three specific reports anybody who's interested can go to your website sullis.ie and there's a wealth of stuff there so I don't want anybody to think that the three pieces we're talking about is all that you do like there's there's tons you know we could have I've done a whole series of just you and me talking about all the reports. Which we could do as well, but at some stage. But Very possibly, yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Volume you two never know. Volume three in it just yet. But yeah. was because there is so, so, so much that it was, it was a very specific decision to sort of stick to three specific reports. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. as you said, it, it's the link between education and employment is, is vital, mm -hmm. really, isn't it? Because like from our point of view, that is really important that educational attainment levels do feed into the types of employment and the odds of you being employed as well. Yeah, certainly. And that, that would be the case, I suppose. Maybe from the outset, I'll just um, just refine a little bit what I mean by lower skilled jobs. We're talking about the jobs, not necessarily the people. So hmm. when we're looking, you know, so the definition of lower skilled employment is people working in jobs that do not require high skills to do them but of course people do some some people do have high skills in yeah. doing them and what determines that usually in the official classifications will be the length of time it takes to acquire either the work experience to be able to do the job or the length of time it takes to acquire the educational qualifications to do the job so obviously some jobs require a much longer lead in time managers generally um mm. you know management experience is what allows you to become a good manager or a doctor or a nurse requires several years of university training and education to be able to do them but we know that there are people in who are working in what we call lower skilled jobs mm. but they're not actually necessarily lower skilled people and i think that's important to recognize that distinction that we're not actually talking about lower skilled people Yes. We're talking about people in lower skilled jobs and for whatever reason they may be in those jobs, that's a separate issue. I think that mm -hmm. you're right, that is a really important distinction that we might begin then I suppose with the piece on lifelong learning because as you okay. said that's that's really important as in for an individual that where you are today isn't where you could be in five years time or where you were five years ago, that your education doesn't need to finish at secondary school or at third level that it's it's a lifelong thing and I suppose I'm very conscious as well that we are living longer we are healthier for longer if we're only going to work now say between 20 and 65 and then live for another 30 years after that do we need to start looking at or working longer you do need access all the time to be able to go back and reskill and upscale so I think that'll be really important that, and as we probably change careers as well a lot more, if we're going to be working mm -hmm. for 50 years instead of 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I think that that's certainly very, very true. I 
don't think these days anymore there's such a thing as a career for life people will change careers uh, you know on several occasions for some people but to be able to do that you need to be able to learn and you need to have access to learning and access to knowledge about learning and we know for example from our research on lifelong learning that people who are older have much smaller shares engaging in lifelong learning there and also people who have lower educational qualifications have much much smaller shares engaging in lifelong learning and yet one could argue these are the people that need it most yes. because um people we know for example from the risk of automation that the people working in those occupations such as operatives or sales they you know occupations that are not at risk of becoming obsolete but are at risk of having their tasks changed so the, jo the jobs are going to disappear they're just going to change how you do the job is going to change and to be able to do the job may well require a significant amount of upskilling including digital skills but mm -hmm. others as well and in order to gain those skills, access to education and training and engagement in education and training will be vital to be able to continue to do that. Um, and, but we do know, and it's not just in Ireland, it's right across Europe. In general, uh, lifelong learning rates decline with age. Okay. It's not just in Ireland that that happens. And they also increase with educational attainment. So the closer people are to the education system, either in terms of years since having left it, mm -hmm. or in terms of the qualification level they attained in the first place, the higher the education level, the greater the engagement in lifelong learning. And yet the people who need it most are the ones with the, at the lower engagement levels. They, they, that, that really needs to be ramped up. Um, and there's, there's lots of ways to do it, particularly in the workplace. But it's, it, it, it isn't just a problem unique to Ireland. It's right across Europe, this one. That does make sense that mm -hmm. if you've got a master's, you're more likely to go on and do a PhD, even if it's after a break. Whereas if you left secondary school, going on to do a degree 10 years later, it's a big ask. It's a, mm -hmm. it's a massive commitment financially in terms, of, exactly. in terms of your energy levels, in terms of time. So that does make sense, I suppose. But if you've maybe had a degree, you are more likely to go back and maybe do a part-time master's or something like that because you're, you have some idea of how the whole system works. Exactly. And I think that's where things, um, you, you know, the whole issue of micro-credentials comes into play, both in the FET sector and in the higher education sector. Now, micro-credentials are gaining increasingly important importance and they're bite-sized amounts of learning. So that commitment mm. um, isn't as, as demanding. You know, it could be a three-week course, it could be even shorter. And not only does it help, you, not only can you accumulate credits that way, you can accumulate confidence as well. And, yes. you, know, you know, the bite-sized learning pieces, you can navigate different um, types of learning as well, different subject areas uh, until somebody can find maybe what they really, really want to do as well. Um, but it's far less daunting than starting a degree program if, you, if you've never done a degree before. Yeah. The, the micro-credentials do offer an incentive maybe and an attractive one to engage in lifelong learning. 
as you said, it's learning how to learn as well mm-hmm. is is part of the process because I find that I suppose in secondary school we were talking about this, the teacher tells you what to think. So if you're doing Dickens or Shakespeare, they'll say to you, this is what Dickens meant and this was the message he was trying to bring across and this is what that poet meant when he wrote this particular poem. So you learn to you learn to learn in a very specific exam oriented environment and then third level or what do you think and how do you think and what do you think and you're kind of going I don't know how to think so it is it is challenging I think that I suppose to open up to to learn how to learn so that's a really interesting thing that somebody doesn't have to make a commitment to a four-year degree or a two-year master's that they can chip away at it credit by credit by credit and develop their skills over time like that that would be ideal, I suppose, in ter- as you said, to try and get people back into learning who are maybe don't consider it as part of their journey. Yeah, or maybe don't consider that they're able to do it either. You know, that's I think confidence is a lot is a big issue. You know, I think it's three percent of people who had at most a junior search, junior mm. search or research, whichever we did at the time. Um, only 3% of those people engaged in lifelong learning last year. Um, but it's 18% of people with a third level qualification. So that's that's a massive difference. Um, and, you, you know, even though the rates last year were lower across the board on account mm-hmm. of COVID, the pattern is always the same. You know, okay. the, the gap, that, that massive gap between educational attainment has has existed for a long time. So when, when everybody declined, at least when one group declined, they all declined. So nobody really gained at all in that. COVID has impacted on last year, on the and then the year before, sorry, in terms of who was doing what. But what sort of, and you mentioned patterns there, what sort of patterns do you see overall in, in lifelong learning? What's What sort of jumps out to you in terms of gender or place? What do you see? Yeah. So in general, in general, females always outnumber males. Okay. It's not by a massive amount, but it's enough to make a difference. Um, for example, last year, 13% of females had engaged in lifelong learning, just 10% of males. So that's that's one. Um, the, the, the next most obvious one then, apart from the education level, which you've just talked about, the next one then is age. So about 16% of younger people, so that would be people aged 25 to 34, about 16% of them had engaged in lifelong learning, but only 7% of 55 to 64 year olds. So that was the other one. The other one then that jumps out is that generally speaking, high skilled occupations or high skilled sectors have generally higher levels of lifelong learning engagement. So people working in professional occupations, typically um, teachers, accountants, nurses, where as part of the condition of working in that occupation, you have to engage in continuous professional uh, development. These people would have generally high levels of engagement in lifelong learning, whereas operative and elementary occupations, so lower skilled occupations, have a much lower level. It's about 5% um, lifelong learning rate for those. And then you would have the corresponding sectors then as well. Education 
is generally one of the highest sectors for lifelong learning. Health is the same. ICT sector is a very big one as well, whereas the lower ones then would be sales and transport. Lifelong learning engagement rates would be usually relatively low on those. Um, another thing we see also is that Dublin tends to have higher rates than most of the rest of the country, whereas the border region and the Midlands regions often will have amongst the lowest. So that, that kind of proximity to, to learning centres is important as well. So that's quite interesting to layer that over where, where the most people at risk of poverty also live. Yeah. Now, I would like you know, the data isn't available at a more granular level. We, you know, this sort of data is available at um, at regional level only. I think to, it would be very interesting to be able to dig down deeper and maybe find areas of Dublin, for example. Mm. Like Dublin has a high rate, but yeah. uh, you know, not all of Dublin would is likely to have the same rate. But the data doesn't tell us that, so we can't get into that any further. But just that Dublin tends to have a high rate, but Dublin then has a lot of education and training institutions, both public and private. Yes, so I suppose if you think of all the language schools in the city centre, they would be included and they wouldn't necessarily be people who would be even staying in Dublin for the long term. That's true, but they they wouldn't be generally surveyed in this sort of um, survey. The, our lifelong learning statistics come from the um, labour force survey, and that's a household survey. So many of these people don't don't live in households. They you know they'd be staying in hotels, or, so they wouldn't be included. But it is true. There some of them could be staying in how you know they could be here for a year, for example, mm -hmm. in which case they would be counted if they were living in a home. Um, the other thing then as well, of course, is employment is very important. Mm. Um, people in employment have high shares working, uh, sorry, high shares engaging in lifelong learning. Now, unemployed people do as well, but people engage, people's workplaces are important locations of lifelong learning as well, because lifelong learning is not necessarily about formal engagement, for example, in a degree program or doing a leaving cert. Um, not the non-formal component can be quite short, it can be a day, it can be a half day. And in in the workplace, there's there there is very often a lot on offer to avail of that. Um, it would be interesting to see what what more can be done or is being done in that in that space because of course it's it's in the citizens interest to be able to remain employable but it's also in the interest of the employers that they have the skills yeah. um, to, to match their needs so and you know solace and the the HEA engage quite a lot with employers trying to align the skills demand with the skills on offer so the in solace uh, there is a, it's it's a relatively it's been around since about 2018 the skills to advance program which is all about providing relatively short courses for people already in employment in areas where where employers need specific types of skills gotcha yeah i suppose as an employer then as well what you probably don't want is to educate your staff out you know the kind of thing so <laughs> What you don't want is to, you know, it's a bit of a tightrope, I'd imagine. If you're going to provide resources for your staff to learn and upskill, you 
need to make sure that that remains within your company. So I, I, I can see sometimes you can, you can see why there might be a bit of a fear around it. Yeah, I, I suppose. But the other way of looking at that is that if everybody did that, well, then it wouldn't matter. Yeah. If somebody was employed, if somebody was trained while in one employment and then they change, well, another employee might also change mm -hmm. and take up a job having been trained by another employer. But, uh, yeah, yeah, it's yeah, it's I suppose it is an, an issue for it's not an issue, but it would be a question mark that maybe yeah. some some people would have. But I think generally it's it's the the opportunity to engage is the most important thing. And I know there are barriers to learning. Childcare is often a barrier. Time is another barrier. Family commitments can be a barrier as well. So it's, I, I'm not so sure that the employer's lack of engagement is, a, is the only issue here, if it's an issue at all. There, there are lots of barriers, but I suppose the, one of the biggest ones is that workers themselves have to see the value in undertaking the training um, and particularly in you know older workers for example which they, they may be heading towards retirement um, and if if the pace of technological change is so rapid that they choose to retire rather than stay on in the workforce that's a loss to the workforce it may be a loss to the worker if they didn't want to retire and just felt they had to and if training even if it's bite-sized training can facilitate them remaining in the workforce for as long as they want rather than for as long as they can um that can only be a benefit yeah. for, for all sorts of indicators including inclusivity and there's the financial concerns as well once people retire there is a dip in finances so providing training particularly digital skills they're not the only skills but digital skills because the change in digital technology is so rapid it's hard to keep up and that's why we need training because we just can't keep up by following what's happening very often we do need those training interventions to do that other skills in demand would be soft skills then you know working in teams adapting to changes is always a big one as well you know, problem solving, creativity, they're all very highly valued skills. It's not always about the technical skills. So I suppose that brings us into then one of the publications that you do is a skills bulletin. Well, in the Springs Bulletin, we were really looking at the skills profile of the population. Okay. And, you, you know, about 44% of Ireland's workforce are in what we call lower and mid-lower skilled occupations. So I stress again, these are not people who are low skilled. They just happen to be in jobs that are lower or mid-lower skilled. And that share is actually smaller than it was 10 years ago. So we're kind of gradually shifting towards an even higher skilled economy. Um, and even though we've got all of these people in these, I think it amounts to just over 1 million people, many of them actually do have third level qualifications. And when I first began looking at it, I thought, oh, that's just because there are lots of students who are maybe doing postgraduate studies, but working maybe in a shop just to tie them over. But that wasn't the case. When we examined the data, there were about 336,000 people who were not students, but who were working in mid-lower or lower skilled occupations, but yet held third level 
qualifications. Okay. So that kind of suggests that there are about 336,000 people that are well-educated, highly qualified. Could they not work in more highly skilled jobs? Um, now, for some, maybe they don't want to. Mm -hmm. that, that's certainly a possibility. Um, maybe the jobs they're in facilitate, you know, another type of lifestyle, you know, where mm -hmm. They, they can combine other um, priorities and childcare, for example, could well be one of those. But, you know, if somebody is working in a lower skilled occupation, if they already have the high qualification, um, maybe there is more room, you know, maybe with a bite sized learning course or maybe guidance knowledge about the pathways into another career that they could actually be mobilized into a higher skills occupation and we know there is a demand for more people to work in the economy you know we never have enough and then and the other side of the coin is that we have about a quarter of a million people who work in high skilled or medium high skilled occupations and they don't have third level qualifications in other words they're high skilled even though they don't actually have high levels of education. So it shows that, that that mobility is also there, that you don't always need a, a third level qualification to move into a high skilled occupation. Now, obviously, for teachers and doctors, there's no getting around it. You have to have that third level qualification. But there are other occupations, typically in business, that don't require that. There is there's a link between educational attainment and employability, but it's not always a concrete one. But exactly, it, yeah. exactly. And you know, sometimes it could be some of it can be market driven. Um, we know from an earlier report, it's not one now we discussed earlier, but it's uh, one where we looked at job vacancy announcements online, mm -hmm. and there job vacancy announcements for administrative occupations. And generally speaking, about 12% of those job adverts required the candidate to hold a third level degree. So only 12%. But the share of people working in administrative occupations who have third level qualifications is much higher than that. It's about, it's, it's not quite 50%, it's a bit lower, it's about 46%. Okay. So even though employers don't need people to have a third level qualification, people with third level qualifications are working in these occupations. So it, it could just be that they're there, so mm -hmm. the employer takes them, even though they don't need necessarily to have a third level degree. Now, some admin jobs do require them, the employer requires them, but most of them don't. Um, and did COVID have much of an impact, I suppose, on, because you could see where, like what was fascinating about 2020 was that tax take didn't really drop, which mm -hmm. gave the impression that it was low, it was low, low paid workers who were most impacted in terms of the sort of stay at home orders and shops closing and hospitality closing and is there a longer term impact, do you think, to that or? Uh, well, it's difficult at the moment to look at things longer term mm. because the world is so volatile at the moment. Yeah. You know, we're no sooner out of the pandemic and the war in the Ukraine mm. has changed things as well. And there's inflation. But in just in terms of um, of, of the immediate aftermath of, of COVID, 
I suppose, you, you know, employment grew between mm. the end of 2019 and the end of 2021 employment grew. But the vast majority of that employment growth occurred for high and mid higher skilled occupations only. It hardly grew at all for the lower ones. So, you know, and that, that would partly explain what you were talking about there about the tax take as well, you know, that the, the um, if high skilled occupations are the ones that grew, well, then they pay more tax as well because they're higher earners in general. Um, so yeah, the lower skilled workers were, were more impacted and actually um, they, the younger ones were as well. It affected young people um, a little bit more, but they tend to work in the, the lower and mid-lower skilled occupations. In terms of um, qualification levels then, not, not just... Um, not not just occupations before and after covid so that time period i'm talking about there in general people who worked in high skilled occupations that employment grew but only if you had at least a fet qualification or higher so people who had a fet qualification their numbers grew people who had a third level qualification their numbers grew but if you were working in a high skilled occupation with either a leading cert or a junior cert those numbers did not grow okay. in fact they fell and it's the same then for medium high skilled workers people with further education and training qualifications people with third level qualifications their numbers grew but they declined for people in order in in lower education okay. qualifications so it it does mean but when you combine when you look at both education level and occupation you know, the jobs they do it generally comes out that the higher your educational attainment in general the the more protected you were in, from covid yeah, I think that's... But then that also depended on the occupation you were doing, you know? Yeah, yeah. But I think that's that's probably the key, isn't it? That, I mean, I'm not a fan of education in terms of, you know, just churning out a career or churning out <laughs> for jobs because education is about critical thinking. Education is about learning to learn. Education is about, as you said, how to debate, how to discuss how to read, how to critique. So it's, it's more than that, but it is also about a job. It is also about a career. And it goes back to what you were saying as well about if I'm 55, do I really want to make the investment in myself in terms of time? Because obviously an investment needs to pay out at some stage. So yeah. it is, and I know with, with part-time education, I, you know, I've, I've always, done part-time education it isn't just committing to the classes it's every waking hour <laughs> that's eaten up with yeah. you have the reading to do then you have assignments I don't want to put anybody off because I'm a massive I'm a huge advocate of lifelong learning I, I think education is transformative I think everybody should be you know in an ideal world pick something that you're interested in and you know learn more about it but it'll be about as you said it's about the protections that having a certain educational attainment level provides you because okay we're, we're we're with COVID that is still a thing that's going to continue the situation in Europe we don't know 
in terms of where that's going to, to pan out. You can see where there's discussions now that we, ne we really need to up our game in terms of moving away from fossil fuel reliance. So again, there's a skills shortage in construction. There's a skills shortage in retrofitting. There's a skills shortage in people who are able to put solar panels and heat pumps. So things are changing very, very quickly. But it's that digital transition and the green transition that I think will be kind of factored in that. So all of these things are happening all at the same time. So it is education will will at least allow you to hopefully maneuver. I don't know, I suppose, yeah. as, as you said, the jobs aren't going to go, they're just going to change. Yes, yes. And actually, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned the green agenda as well, because you know, we, we all know about the, you know, the energy technician, the wind turbine operator, the solar panel installer, they're all very definitely um, identifiable as mm. green skills. But more and more, we're going to have to adopt green skills in other occupations that we maybe didn't think of 40 years ago. Um, a facilities manager, for example, you know, keeping a building running with the correct amount of water and electricity and, and organizing all of those facilities on behalf of a workforce. They now need green skills, mm. which they wouldn't have needed 40 years ago. A primary school teacher yes. needs a certain amount of green skills so that that knowledge can be imparted to the next generation and that it can be embedded from a very early age. And you can still teach maths without green skills, but it's probably um, a very good idea if it can be incorporated into the into the school day on a regular basis. So almost all our working lives are going to require a certain amount of green skills. And the EU have done a, a study on the impact of the European Green Deal on employment. And overall, it's estimated that there will be an additional 1.2% growth in employment over and above what would have happened had the green skills agenda not been implemented. So it is a positive move apart from hopefully, you know, doing something to save the planet. Mm. It's, um, it's, it's actually going to add jobs to the economy, mm. um, but it will also change jobs in the economy as well. So we're not, the jobs will not be the same as they were yeah. before. And I think we all have to kind of grapple with that. And it's intertwined as well with digital skills. A lot of the green the move towards green technology will involve an interaction with digital skills. Don't know if you've seen the ads on television for smart meters. Yes. You know, but for smart meters, I mean, I have one on my phone, but that requires me to interact with a smartphone, which fortunately I can do. But yeah can everybody can order people so there's you know there's this constant upskilling and reskilling and keeping on top of things at a faster and faster rate it seems is going to be required no i i think you're right because it's even things like um you know mm. money money is changing travel mm -hmm. is changing food mm -hmm. is changing clothing is changing how we do things change the skills that come with that then Will, will fluctuate. All of those things, construction was huge, then it disappeared. Anybody who was in construction didn't, couldn't find work, especially older men in construction when the, you know, when the crash happened. They're the sort of people I often think about when I think about reskilling and upskilling. So if a, a man who's worked in construction since his teens 
lost his job at the age of 62 or 63 and has only ever worked in construction and is a high skilled operator mm -hmm. within that specific area, within that one industry. Like you're completely at sea then, aren't you? You know, he's never sat at a desk, but he's, he's a master at what he does. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So he's a high skilled operative in his own industry. And then that mm -hmm. industry disappeared. Like that's mm -hmm. a huge, it's a huge ask, but he's exactly the sort of person who needs to be in this system then, isn't he? Yeah, and I, you know, it, it's probably psychologically, apart from anything else, it's probably better not to wait until you're stuck before mm. engaging in, in lifelong learning and, or just in learning in general, that it, it really needs to be something that takes place on a very regular basis throughout our lives, then we're not necessarily afraid of it either. It is daunting. Mm to go back into a classroom or to you know try and engage with lifelong learning and the technology that can go wrong when you try to engage in an online course or you know you're depending on it to go right and if you get stuck and can't even log into the first lesson yeah. it becomes very very off-putting yeah. whereas if you do this frequently and on a regular basis the the one or two times it doesn't quite work out become less of a problem and they become less daunting. Yes, that makes sense. I suppose that feeds us nicely then into the third report, which is women on home duties. So mm -hmm. again, looking at a cohort of people who um, are not in the system and then how, because it's about choice as well, I suppose if somebody, if somebody makes a decision to, to remain at home, that's absolutely fine. But if it's a thing mm -hmm. where it's about putting choices in front of people. So the women on home duties piece then, like again, what what would you pull out of that that was of interest or of note? Um, yeah, so this was one of our first uh, pieces of work. It was carried out mainly by my colleague, Joan McNabo. And when we did this, we were particularly interested in trying to identify cohorts in the population that were not in the labor force. So they were not working and they weren't looking for work mm -hmm. either. And we wanted to see, was there anything in there where maybe for some people, they may actually choose to re-enter the workforce. And as the, the more interesting part of that was that depending on the education level of the person, of the woman, um, their their reasons for being at home are a little bit different. So, for example, 47% of women with third level qualifications had children aged five years or younger. But for people who did not have third level, so they had upper secondary or, or less, that was 25%. Okay. So, you know, almost half of third people of women with third level qualifications were at home, probably because they were looking after children, but it was only a quarter for women with upper secondary education or less. And that means then, uh, you know, because we're coming from an education and training background, it means that the, the education and training interventions for these need to be slightly different. People with upper secondary education or uh, less, they were also less likely to have had work experience. Okay. You know, just 67% of them had had previous work experience prior to leaving the workforce. So it's, um, you know, short courses with a work experience component could very well 
be very valuable to people with lower educational um, qualifications compared to people with uh, with third level. They probably don't need the same education and training intervention as as others would, you know. So and maybe childcare yeah. facilities would be another one. The message really is is that this is important and that there's there's something out there to suit you whatever your level is or whatever your path is yeah i think that's exactly it you know there's more choices now than ever before um fetchcourses.ie gives a very good um list of courses that are available part-time blended full-time so they would be further education and training courses but then springboard plus would be for the higher education sector if people were interested in pursuing a higher education qualification and they're not necessarily full programs you know a master's you the commitment can actually be a lot shorter as well there are what they call um, minor awards or special purpose awards. So again, bite-sized pieces of learning for either further education and training or third level programs. And I think for me, the key message is that learning does need to continue, not just once or twice throughout the career, but constantly and regularly so that we have as much choice you know, yeah. we don't have to stay in the workforce if we can afford to leave it but if we want to stay in it that we should be able to a lack of skills should not force us out it's just it's a really fascinating area and i think you're you're so right this is not a judgment it's not like so long as it's people's choice yeah i don't think there's anything you know like we need low lower skilled workers yeah. there's no doubt about it i think maybe that's a that's a a valid point we need people to work in those lower skilled occupations mm. so there it's it's not that we're trying to remove people out of them but these should be people's choices yeah. Yeah. and to give people and give people the power to give themselves choices yeah. is very important in education and training be that further education and training or higher education and training training is one way yeah. to give people those choices yeah uh, to make it available that people engage in them. And the beauty of nowadays is that you can engage in a four week course, you can engage in a three day course. It can even be one day and bit by bit, you can build a portfolio of skills that may, that, that'll give you the choice. Mm -hmm. So it's, um, but if people then choose to do jobs that are not particularly high skilled, but it allows them a lifestyle they want to live, well, then that's great. They have the choice to maybe change their minds later on if they want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So as long as these things are choices, that's the yeah. important thing. Yeah. But it's a choice. I, yeah. It's just, it's something we often get in um, in our unit, the Skills yeah. and Labour Market Research Unit, because we're all about the economy, you know, aligning mm -hmm. skills and needs with the needs of the economy. But one of the arguments we hear back, yes, but what about the wider benefits of learning, learning for learning's sake? And that that's that's equally valid. Mm. Um, and and we, we, we subscribe to that as well. But at the same time, if the government is funding a very large program like Skills to Advance or Springboard, there have to be outcomes that bring an economic benefit to the individual yeah if they decide to do that course for economic reasons. I mean, I know we're a, a land of saints and scholars, but we don't need 
an annual churn of poets, you know, yeah. that in terms of the economy, I mean, I said our president is a poet, so like mm. it's not to knock that, but there is, mm. as you said, there's a balance between the economic and the social and the personal yeah. and the cultural and the environmental aspect of education. And I do, I think exactly. it's the confidence piece as well that comes with it, that yes. if you do a little bit, you kind of go, oh, I can do this. So mm -hmm. if you've had six good experiences learning and maybe one bad one that the one bad one wouldn't color or wouldn't put you off going back for seven eight nine and ten and mm -hmm. i think that's the other key thing as you said that it has to be a little and often approach is probably where the real value is no thank you so much for that yeah. that was brilliant thank, thank you. you thank you so much. it was a lovely conversation thank you thank you Thank you for listening to this podcast. I hope you found it useful. And if you have any ideas for future podcasts, please feel free to email us at secretary at socialjustice.ie with your suggestions. Until next time, stay safe.